every time you mention it. How does you, what's usually the reaction to that? Oh, they just smile and listen. Just smile and nod. And, and then I and I explain to them how, and I usually get my copy of the early church writings out. Oh yeah. And um, and I said so you know, the only problem in the church was when Islam came about, and I that they came right in the middle of the two churches, so the East and the West Church didn't have the communication that they had, and I said that was the only separation there. Right. Well, and even there, even there, especially that especially takes place once the Turks show up in like the twelve right. to fourteen hundreds. Yeah. Um, that kind of like makes the the split almost more permanent yeah. because there are motions. So when there's the first kind of big showdown in ten fifty four, when the Pope's representatives come into the Orthodox Cathedral in Constantinople and they do the whole they excommunicate each other and it's all this big disaster. <laughs> What's funny is most people at the time did not view that as an actual schism between the two. Uh -huh. They viewed it as more of like just kind of a temporary kind of people butting heads, two yeah, real strong world people. Right. So initially it was not it was not considered like this big split yet. Right. It wasn't until after once the, you had the rise of Islam, you had different political situation in the West, mm -hmm. that that separation becomes more permanent. Because there are actually attempts to keep, to, to reunite. There actually right. are. And so there's a council of Florence in like the 1300s uh -huh. where they actually try to get back together again, yeah. but the East rejects some of those canons. And so it was just kind of those, but I mean, the, the point being, it was, it was never meant to be a permanent separation on either side. No. And so, but that's actually one of the reasons, that's a, you know, you know how Pastor this morning was talking about alternative histories, like, mm -hmm. you know, what if America didn't yeah. develop the atomic bomb? Or one of the interesting ones is in, in church history is to ask that question about it, would the Reformation have happened if there had never been a schism? Because a lot of the stuff that was abused in the West was not abused in the East. There was not like say this, you know, Almighty Pope or whatever. Right. You didn't have the system of indulgence. Right. You didn't have the system of indulgences in the East. Yeah. You didn't have official teaching of purgatory in the East. Right. You had all these, you know, so a lot of the stuff that was considered like problematic in the West mm -hmm. did not exist. And so the question is, is with that, would that be? It's an interesting. It's an interesting hindsight. Twenty twenty. Um, in the Luther movie, they do that really well because, like Luther says, what about the Greek Christians? And Karlstadt, before he becomes like this rebel, mm -hmm. Karlstadt's still giving official doctrine at this point, mm -hmm. and he goes, says something like, well, the Greek Christians, we already know that our mother church, blah, 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 and he kind of gives this answer and non-answer, mm -hmm. and then Luther replies, like, according to this, you can have faith, just not outside of Christ, and he kind of gives these canons, mm -hmm. and that salvation can be found outside of the Roman church. And he's, in particular, was emphasizing the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek Christians. And so even back in the 1500s, the, you know, that's, it's already coming up. Right. So it just makes you kind of wonder. I'll wait for a couple minutes to see if my wife comes in or not. She, had, she was going to check and see if there was anybody in the nursery. <laughs> she used to be that person, so she's no longer the head of that anymore. Oh. She, once we had child number four, it was time to be done. So, but yeah, we're missing, let's see, I'm sure Jessica Perry's at Women's Retreat, Teresa Dinger's at Women's Retreat. I'm guessing Grace Stoltz went to, so I might go, I might spend a little bit more time on Acts 15 just so I'm not blistering yeah, through, and so, I'm, you know, we're kind of, yeah. so that, I'm just kind of making that executive decision, but it won't be, it won't be bad. Yeah. I got that up. Oh, hey, Ross. Hello. Oh. Either. I'm not afraid of you. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> we had a there was a we had a speaker named Mike Schrock in Chicago. It was Mike Schrock. This was when I was back in my 
independent Bible church days, and he was one of those kind of like southern preachers, you know, get in your face. Oh, and he wow. literally would say, he literally was like, okay, I'm sorry, sister, but you're going to have to move back because when I get into this, I'm going to stop spitting. <laughs> and so sure and sure enough, you could actually see if you're sitting back far enough, he's and he was right. Spraying. He's spraying because he's just going. He's just he's just breathing fire or whatever. And so he would pre, he would forewarn the people in the front that that would happen. I thought that was pretty funny. His name was Mike Schrock. The only reason I remember him is he also was a trumpet player. He was a good trumpet player, so he would play his trumpet as like. He's used to spitting all the time anyway. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> That's true. He's the buzz. Yeah, he's buzzing around. Kind of reminds me of that comedian Gallagher that used to smash uh, watermelons with a big, big oh yeah big hammer, and he people would he bash those watermelons, and people began to bring plastic sheeting yeah. <laughs> and umbrellas to. I forgot that that was a thing for a while, smashing the watermelons <laughs> at a Wheaton College. So Wheaton was called the Harvard of Christian Colleges. So a lot of you know very very smart kids there, and so that's both positive and negative. The negative is when they do pranks. Very intelligent pranks, <laughs> and so like, for example, we're gonna we're gonna invent a catapult that can throw a watermelon three thousand yes. feet, sort yes. of prank. So okay. they actually climbed up to the top of our dorm building. We're launching watermelons across our quad. Yes, you know, and stuff like that. So, yes. or what so would it I went to Kansas Farmer College and we did that. Too. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you went to St. John's, right? Built a trebuchet. Yeah. <laughs> the other one. The other one was a. Uh, uh, the, we had a, our chapel a speaker who was our president of the college at the time. So this is generic evangelicals. There's Baptists, Lutherans, Anglicans, Methodists. There's everybody there, right? So he was kind of a, a dispensationalist. So, you know, he's kind of a tribulation type guy. So he'd get up in there. He kept talking about crown time, that we're not in crown time yet, that God's not reigning in the church was his point yet, you know, because we're still in this world. So you kept talking about crown time. So the next time he mentioned it, everybody put on Burger King crown hats <laughs> in the chapel. <laughs> Like, he said you weren't, and they said we are. Yeah, yeah, so we all put on the hat. He's, he's, he just kind of sat there and smirked for a while. He's like, okay, I'll stop saying that so much. So <laughs> uh, they also stole the, po they stole the podium and put it on his porch. So he woke up in the morning, and the podium he was supposed to use to preach from was on his porch. So he called the chaplain in kind of in a panic. Okay, Chaplain Kellogg, just so you know, this is, in our, this is on my porch. And Chaplain Kellogg's response was, well, I'll have you know we have two podiums, and the other one is on my porch. <laughs> and so there was like... <laughs> so that meant they're holding their classes on their porch, and they better right. show up. Well, and so then in chapel the next day, he said, all right, I'm not a big person for pranks, but that was well done. <laughs> There's nothing we could have done for that one. Nice job. So chapel pranks became kind of a thing. Everybody released balloons at the same time. When we met in a place that had concrete floors, everybody rolled marbles to the front at the same time. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, and you get... You get 2,000 yeah. college kids in there that have to go to chapel three times a week, and eventually it starts to get creative, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Those are pretty funny. All right, I'll just go through this, and then if people want to kind of catch up. So uh, we're going to start with Acts 15. If you have your Bible, it's great. If you want to open it, if you don't, I will read the text for you. Um, but I want to kind of just get us into the New Testament church and these early years where the church was not the majority, it was the minority, and it's a persecuted church. But how does this work out? Because initially it's just viewed as a Jewish sect. The Roman authorities call it a Jewish superstition. They're not really interested in it. It's like, oh, the Jews have one of their problems. You can kind of see that in the attitude of Pontius Pilate. What's this? You know, this, take care of this. This is your problem. He doesn't want, want anything to do with this because it has to do with the Jews, right? And so what we end up happening, though, 
is eventually the Gentiles become more and more present in the church. As the Apostle Paul goes around the Mediterranean world, and even Peter, when he's in Antioch, but in different places, they're actually introducing uh, Gentiles to the church. So then the question becomes, how do they join? In other words, do they have to be Jewish in order to join the church? Because the church still is a Jewish movement. Paul's Jewish, Peter's Jewish, James is Jewish, right? All the leaders, the pillars of the church, are Jewish, so it creates a controversy. And that's kind of how this picks this up. And this is actually the first council of the church. And I'm going to start, from, and this is uh, Acts 15. So if you're following along, I'm going to just start right here, right in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. Notice it always says up to Jerusalem, right? Because Jerusalem's on the hill, right? And down, down to Antioch just means downhill because it's north. I always think of map. Right. My it's, brain always goes maps up and down, and this is... Right. It's like the altitude. Nile. The Nile River flows north. Mm-hmm. So the upper Nile is going up. Yeah. And so, I mean, no, the lower Nile is going up. Sorry, I did. I even see. Yes, I just did that. Top, yeah. The upper Nile is down because it's higher up. That's called the upper. The lower Nile, where it empties into the Mediterranean, is actually going north. Okay. And so it gets a little confusing in terms of directions. So, anyway, so they're going up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in or, and to order to keep them the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. That's interesting. Peter, he's talking about a change in Peter. If you know the yeah. story of Peter, that's a huge change, the way he's talking. Okay? And then the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after finishing speaking, James, and James, this is the half-brother of Jesus or family member of Jesus, okay? James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just that it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. From very ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath to the synagogues. And so then they send a letter. So they meet in this council, and they send a letter, and they have Barnabas and Paul being part of these delegate, this delegation, and it's actually resolved. Now, what this does, and you can kind of see this, this is called the Jerusalem Council. 
and Acts 15. So you get the ground the groundwork. You have these pillars of the church. James is sometimes called the first bishop of Jerusalem. Now, bishop uh, doesn't necessarily mean he has all the vestments like a Roman Catholic bishop, but what it means is he's an overseer. That's all that word means. It's episkopos. We see that through the New Testament. Pastor Dinger, as senior pastor, could be called Bishop Dinger because he's the overseer of this church, right? And in fact, Pastor Jim, because he's the circuit visitor, could be called the Bishop of you know, the Yellowstone Circuit or something like that. We just don't use that term in the United States. All it simply means is overseer. So was James the overseer of the Church of Jerusalem? The answer is yes. So if you want to call him Bishop, sure. But when people hear that, they think a guy that has, you know, the shepherd's crook and the tall Mitra hat and everything, you know, that dressed out as in bishop garb, which he would not have had. <laughs> okay, so they, they put medieval dress on him and call him a bishop. It's like, well, that's not exactly what that means. But yes, he was the leader of the Church of Jerusalem. So you have Peter there, you have James there, and you have Paul there. These three huge pillars of the church. And other disciples are probably present as well, and Barnabas and others. And so when they're here, most people date this to 48 to 50 AD, but some have even said it's the late 30s, which would put the Jerusalem Council at about 38 or 39 AD. It just kind of depends on how you read Paul's letters, to be honest, and how you read Galatians. And so it kind of depends on where you date those letters. Um, so how can they join, and how does the law apply? And you heard Peter, why would we put a yoke on them when we couldn't even do it ourselves? <laughs> it's kind of a funny comment, but it's true. They could never completely fulfill the law. So Peter's like, why are we putting a burden, a yoke, right, an ox yoke on them? So that's the question. So what happens here? So there's a couple of things. Number one, again, it shows that Gentiles are joining. It emphasizes strong apostolic leadership. Rochelle was talking about this before we started class. But the idea that there is this apostolic doctrine, this apostolic this deposit of faith that's present. And so if you're departing from that or if you're adding to it, we've got a problem. And that's going to be kind of a debate as history goes. But we can trace, especially from a teaching standpoint, what we call apostolic succession. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single town has had a bishop that goes back 3,000 years. Some people do do that. They'll say, here's our bishop list. Who was ordained by him, who was ordained by him, but who was ordained by him. And it goes all the way back to Peter or whatever. You know, you will people. But the idea here is a little bit more of doctrine. What do we teach? Than it is you have apostolic succession specifically. Now, the early church will emphasize that to show the Gnostics, the people that show up and say, I have a secret gospel of Thomas, or I have a secret gospel of Judas, or whatever it is. When those people show up, the church does say, Nope, everybody knows who our leaders are. Here's the list. And We've not taught anything new. You're the ones inventing stuff. So obviously your stuff's later than our stuff. And so they do use it later, but not right now. And so what it does also do is start this idea of having councils of the church. So when we have these big, great councils later, they actually look to the apostles and this biblical precedent in Acts 15 and said, hey, they had a controversy and they met in council. Why can't we? And sure enough, that's how we end up with our creeds and everything else. So the results, don't commit idolatry, don't commit sexual immorality, but circumcision is now unnecessary for salvation. And those are pretty, that's pretty good advice. And it's the, the basics of the Ten Commandments is what they're relaying, if you really think about it. Don't have any other gods before God, right? That's what that one is. Uh, don't commit adultery, don't covet. That's kind of com combined in that second one. And then they have some stuff about um, things that are strangled and blood and then those kind of ritual purifying things. And the idea was that it was cleanliness, and so there's just a little bit of a hangover from that Jewish tradition there. But Eastern Christians, to this day, follow some of this. This is why they roast things on a spit still, for example, like in Greece. They want to make sure that there's no blood in the animal, so they roast it on a spit. 
they don't eat rare food very much. Like, you know, we go get a steak for medium rare. The, if you're a true, very serious Greek, or, Greek Orthodox, everything is well done. Not even medium. Not even medium. Yeah, it's all well done. Because there can't be. So they're actually, follow, they're actually following through on this, this uh, stuff that's found in Acts 15. So it's kind of interesting. So this is kind of how we, we start off the history of the church. And what I like about this, and I know pastors mentioned this before. So here we are at the most 20 years after Jesus, and they're already disagreeing with each other. <laughs> so, you know, we get, we get, we get all, all upset in the way we do church right now and say, oh, if they would just do this, or why can't we get along, or why does synod leadership say this, or why does pastor this guy say this, and the other pastor not like each other, and blah, 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 blah. We go back to the other church with the apostles themselves, and they're having a conflict. <laughs> and they got to meet in a council to figure it out. So this is not new, but the idea of meeting a council is a big deal. All right, so what I want to do is then kind of pivot from this and show the type of people that we're dealing with, these early apostles and then the early church fathers that knew these apostles. So we're in that kind of early apostolic era. I actually have this hanging in my wall in the school. It's called Christian Martyr's Last Prayer by Jerome. It's from 1883, and it shows Christians in the arena. And just to kind of point out some details for you, obviously you have lions and tigers, the wild beasts that they've probably starved for several, several weeks or whatever coming up from underneath the ground. And then you have their pastor, most likely, dressed in a Roman toga. So these are Roman, Gentile believers. He's dressed in a toga. And he's surrounded by all the different folks. And interestingly, if you look closely, the way they're dressed is from different stages of life. Some are richer, some are poorer. So it's obviously showing that it doesn't matter what your class is. There are people here that are representing the faith. If you look in the back, you have burnt Christians. Do you see this? See how these, they're already black? See that? And then these are already on fire. It was very traditional back then to have, uh, have uh, like Nero, for example, would light his torches at night or light his gardens at night with Christian torches. He would put them on a cross and infuse them with basically like a napalm, like wear, make them wear a napalm shirt and light them on fire. Okay, and so it was brutal. I mean, they, they, if you said, I believe, that's credo, I believe, like we say in our creeds, that's where we get the word creed, credo. I believe in God the Father Almighty, like we say in the creeds, Back then, that could have been a death sentence, if you said that, especially with somebody like Nero. And so this, this captures that really well, and this is the Colosseum, of course, the arena. It's very famous, and up here is the Palatine Hill, so the palace is up on the top, you know, looking down. But yeah, Nero was known for lighting his gardens at night with Christians. And so it's kind of a brutal picture, but it's also a beautiful picture, because it shows how the early church um, basically paid for the faith, and it grew. So they tried to stamp it out, and in the words of the Father Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. So the more the Christians they killed, the more that actually popped up. So it's kind of one of those, like, you can imagine the emperors, like, I thought I dealt with this problem already, and now there's more of them. And that's basically what happened. So I just wanted to show you this to give you a taste of what this, this era would have been like uh, that the apostles were dealing with. Of course, we know that uh, Peter probably, as the tradition says, ended up in Rome and was probably crucified. Some traditions say that he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in a way that his Lord was. Um, the Apostle Paul was probably beheaded in a prison in Rome also during the reign of Nero. And the reason he was beheaded, not tortured and all this stuff, is because he was a Roman citizen. And so the way a Roman citizen was killed was quick and painless, just off with the head. And you can actually visit the prison that he was in. It's called the Maritime Prison. It's actually not far from the Colosseum. So if you can go to Rome, you can see where Paul was in prison and perhaps wrote some of his letters, actually, in prison. And you can see the window where he would have handed things out and had stuff handed to him and everything, because they let you do that. That's how they survived, basically, back then. 
Right, so Paul, and then we have legends of, of course, the uh, James being sawn in half. It's about gruesome. Um, a guy named St. Loris was roasted on a griddle, and he became the patron saint of comedians when, for, in his humor, after he had been there for a while, he said, okay, this side's done, now turn me over. And so, and so he's now the patron saint of comedians in the Roman Catholic tradition. So a little morbid humor there. But, I mean, some of these people went through just horrific punishments. And the thing that I tell my high school students all the time is, is unless you truly believe Jesus rose from the dead, why would you submit to this? I'm not talking about people in the year 1000 where they, there's no eyewitnesses. These people knew. They knew. The apostles knew whether or not they believed they saw Jesus rose from the dead. And that's a classic question. Would you die for a lie? And the answer is nobody would die for a lie. Why would you, if you were inventing a religion, why would you submit yourself to gruesome torture just to pull one over on somebody? I mean, I don't know many people that would do that, let alone all of them doing that, plus women and others, right? I mean, you just wouldn't do that unless you believed it was true. So, I'm going to give you a couple of stories because I like telling stories. The first one I'm going to tell is Ignatius of Antioch, and that's where your handout is. And you can see, based on his iconography, how he dies. <laughs> right? So if you go to a church and you see lions on the hand and the feet, it's probably Ignatius of Antioch. And so you can see when he dies, about 110, but he was actually born sometime in the 20s or 30s. These, uh, back here, it's not exact science in terms of birth dates and death dates. But you can see the, uh, the iconography. And so he's wearing the omifron. It's actually very similar. Um, at the 830 service, you know how pastor wears the, the kind of the yoke, right? That he wears down. the all, So he wears that down. And it's very similar. You can see the tradition there, right? With crosses or symbols on it. It goes back for a while. The chasuble. No, not the chasuble. Chasuble is the stole. real. Stole. There we go. That's what I'm looking for. I'm thinking, I'm naming everything else. Ah, stole. There we go. The stole that he wears is like the omifron in the east. So it's this kind of, um, it's marked with symbols. Okay. So anyways keep moving here. So how, what's he, and I'm just going to kind of walk through the story brief. Oops, I'm going to go back. There we go. So he's a disciple of the Apostle John. So this is an ant, and uh, probably in Antioch or in Ephesus or one of these other places, but he's of Antioch because that's where he ends up becoming pastor, the early missionary center of the church. He's probably ordained by John or Peter. So this is somebody who knew the apostles. This is not somebody who, you know, oh, my great-granddaddy knew Peter or something. This is somebody who first-hand knowledge knew who these people were. And so after, he's either the second bishop or apostle in that place. You can call him a pastor, too, because he would have been a pastor. Now, this is kind of a cool story. He is sometimes called Theophorus, which means the God-bearer or one who was born by God, because there became a legend that when Jesus says, let all the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God, that he was the one that Jesus sat on his lap. He was literally picked up by God and put on his lap, get, get the legend there. Whether or not that's true or not, it's a church tradition. We don't have any evidence of that, but it's just a tradition. So he's sometimes called the God-bearer. So he even signs his letters with this. Apparently it was a very common way that people addressed him. So who knows? Maybe there's something to that or some other story we're not aware of. But that would be kind of a neat connection, wouldn't it? That... That, that child that Jesus set down made such an impression on that kid's life that he would become this great leader in the church. It's a cool story, whether or not it's true or not. Okay? And so he's born somewhere around the end of Christ's ministry, so the dates do somewhat work for that. You know, if he was like a little baby, like, no, not a baby, like three years old, four years old. Um, what he's most famous for now are the seven letters he wrote when he was going from Antioch to Rome for his trial. So again, probably another Roman citizen like Paul. And I'll give you the map for this in just a second. And so they sound like Paul's letters. It'll say, I, Ignatius, blah, 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 Ignatius, Theophilus, to 
John Smith in Rome of the people of God. Blessings and greetings in the name of our Lord. It sounds just like Paul because that's how you wrote letters back then. And so it's very, very much in the style of Paul. And so one of the things actually, and I, and I point to him, one of the reasons I became a Lutheran is because of this guy. This may, this may seem odd to say that, but a guy who died in 110, 17, I, I put both dates up there, but somebody who died in the 100s is one of the reasons I became a Lutheran. And the reason why is this guy who was ordained by Peter and ordained by John talks about Holy Communion and Sunday worship in a way that unless you have sacraments, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I'll give you an example when we get going here. So here's one. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Eucharist, that's another word for Holy Communion, right, is the medicine of immortality, the antidote against death, and everlasting life of Jesus Christ. It's a little more than a symbol, wouldn't you say, if you're saying stuff like that? Something's going on. If, if there's something going on in Holy Communion. So here I am as a Baptist at a Baptist seminary, Liberty University, and I look at this and I'm saying, okay, so this guy who knew Peter and John, who was ordained by them, who was a pastor to people who knew these people, so in other words, he knows what doctrine is, he knows what good doctrine is, he's writing these letters, including to a church that Paul wrote a letter to, Ephesians, and what's he say? That Holy Communion is the medicine of immortality and the antidote against death. I read that and I, and I just... I said, well, I'm not smarter than he was. He knows better than I do. And huge, uh, there's massive churches all around the world that teach something along these lines, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, Orthodox, etc. And so after reading this and studying him a little bit longer, I basically said, you know what? I think that there's a sacrament here. That something, there's a means of grace. Something is going on. It's not just an ordinance where we symbolically do it three times a year. But there's an actual grace being conferred through Holy Communion. Because look at this. this. Look how clear this one. This is later to the Smyrnaeans. Smyrna is a region in western Turkey. But look at this. Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. That's pretty strong. So when we say, this is my body, this is my blood, and that Jesus' body is in, with, and under the elements of communion... This isn't new doctrine. Okay, this is stuff that the church has always taught. I mean, look at the date again, right? He's writing this letter about 107 AD, okay? If he's writing this and he knew the apostles and he's saying that there's something going on here, my guess is there's something going on there. <laughs> that's just my guess. And so that's what convinced me. Flesh which suffered for our sins and which that father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. That's about as high a view of Holy Communion as you will get. And here it is in Ignatius of Antioch, the guy who actually knows Peter and John. I just was fascinated by this. And so I got the original apostolic writings. I'll show you the cover of it on a slide later. But I've got the apostolic writings in translation. And I just poured through that. And after reading it from cover to cover a couple times, I'm not a Baptist anymore. <laughs> I'm just not. I just, I cannot... I cannot deny that there's something going on in Holy Communion. And because there's something going on, I need that more than just three times a year. You know, that's just, it was just something. And baptism was trickier. Baptism, because that, that, that doctrine develops a little bit differently. Uh, my wife was raised in a Baptist church. That develops differently as things go. But even there, uh, uh, the thing that convinced me, reading Augustine and others, is God is outside of time. And so, what does the order really matter if God is outside of time? Think about it, you know. Do you have to have a believer's baptism, or can you have an infant be baptized? Well, if God's outside of time, what does, the, what does the order make? It doesn't make any difference. 
know what I'm saying? So there's some philosophical things I had to work through to get to baptism. All right. Here's another quote. Be not seduced by strange doctrines, nor by antiquated fables, which are profitless. For if even unto this day we live after the matter of Judaism, we avow that we have not received grace. If then those who had walked in ancient practices attained into newness of hope, no longer observing Sabbaths, but fashioning their lives after the Lord's day, that's Sunday. So here we also have very early on that they're worshiping on Sunday already. We have that in Revelation, by the way. It says on the Lord's day, John says that. But here we have here in this early writing, they're worshiping on Sundays already. And it wasn't because they were anti-Jewish. You catch this? And so in other words, we're not, we're not going after this. We, we've received grace now, and that's key. We're not following the law anymore because we have grace to not have to follow that law because of Christ. Okay, and so, and he'll give you an even stronger quote. On which our life also arose through him and through his death, which some men deny. How shall we be able to live apart from him? And this is a strong quote, but I want you to think about what he means by it. It is monstrous to talk of Jesus Christ and to practice Judaism, for Christianity did not believe in Judaism, but Judaism and Christianity. Do you get the point he's making? You're going backwards. See, right? If Jesus came and he is who he says he is, Judaism, you know, and you could also use the word even give birth. Judaism gave birth to Christianity, not the other way around. You're going the, you're going the opposite direction. So why would you practice the law, those, all those ceremonial laws, including circumcision, like Acts 15? Why would you do that stuff if Jesus is who he says he is? Why? And that's a great question, and we have to worry about that. And that's actually, I mean, pastor, pastor will tell you, every year he gets two or three letters about how he's sitting by worshiping on Sunday. Every year, every year, he gets letters that you should be worshiping on Saturday. And then I, me being the, you know, his church history geek that I am, so I tell him to read Ignatius of Antioch sometime, <laughs> who knew John, and, you know, who knew, and he'll say, well, it's a conspiracy, you know, he was anti-Jewish or he was anti-Semitic or something. I was like, no, he's not anti-Semitic. <laughs> he had Jewish members of his congregation. Come on now, let's go. And so, and he could himself have been even Jewish. We're not sure. No, he's a Roman citizen probably, but he himself could have been Jewish. So no, it's not anti-Semitic. The idea is, is Jesus rose from the dead and he is our Sabbath rest, so we honor him on Sunday. It's not a legalistic thing. If you want to worship God on Saturday, great. Some churches do. Eastern Orthodoxy, I'll mention them again. They have Saturday services. They do. Okay? It's not like it's bad. It's is there, just, is yeah, there any other indications of Christians worshiping on Sunday before this? Yeah, so the text itself, we have like in, uh, in uh, the book of Revelation, John, on, he talks about on the Lord's Day. He calls it the Lord's Day, which is specifically a reference to Christ because in Revelation, it's in the first couple chapters where he mentions that he's, he has this vision, this kind of heavenly worship vision. Most people will point to that as saying that there's some sort of heavenly worship going on on Sunday. So that's one reference that we have for that. Um, and then part of it is just theological inferences, like when Paul says that Christ is our Sabbath rest. And that he rose up on the, you know what I'm saying? He rose on the third day. That is just kind of an inference. Um, but Revelation is probably the earliest example. This is an example, something called the Didica, which is like a manual of Christian practice, which dates to the same century, also has Sunday worship. So it's very, very early. I mean, and uh, again, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm just kind of pointing at it, and it's not prescribed. And what I like about the New Testament is it's never prescribed. You must worship on Sunday, right? It's never prescribed. And the church has never said that. It's just we've done it to honor Christ because every Sunday is a mini resurrection Sunday. Which is why, like, that's why during Lent we don't count those days as days of Lent. 
you know that right that's why dead set lens actually like 46 days instead of 40 days because of those sundays which are mini resurrection sundays because we have communion and stuff like that so it's just some it and, and, and so rust i guess the main thing to say is it's passed into common church practice and it's good healthy theologically correct church practice it's very early it's very ancient it's biblically correct why would we blow you know reinvent the wheel or blow it up just because you get what i'm saying so i it's it's more of a I get baffled by people who want to do it, and I think it's because, like he says here, they're trying to revert backwards. I think they're going the wrong direction. Because if you think about it, if you say you still need the law, that means Jesus didn't do enough. Right? Yeah. Jesus didn't do enough. If you still have to wash a certain way, if you still have to sacrifice a goat on Yom Kippur, if you still have to uh, obey the woven fabrics rule, and all these ceremonial and cleanliness laws, then Jesus didn't fulfill it. Now, if you want to do those things because that's your heritage, and that's actually what happens, if you're a Jew and you want to do those things because you've always done it, it's a way of honoring your, great. But don't put that burden on the Gentile Christians. And that's the point of Acts 15, what we just read, is don't put that burden on the Gentile Christians. All right, so what happens to him? He's killed in the, killed in the Flavian Amphitheater, later known as the Colosseum. It's not quite to the Colosseum scale yet. Um, his last known words, When I suffer, I shall be free in Jesus Christ, and with him shall rise again in freedom. I am God's wheat to be ground by the teeth of beasts, so that I would be offered as pure bread of Christ. How do you kill a movement like that? You, I mean, you go and say, you just can't kill that. The, I mean, if that's their pastors talking, and this is the leadership they're providing, you will not kill a church like that. It's just not going to happen. And so he's killed by the lions. So what does he do? That's his route. So you can see Antioch right here in what is now Syria, okay? He's going to go and cover the course of Turkey. There's Tarsus. Remember Saul of Tarsus? That's Paul. So he's going to go through these cities, and you'll recognize them either from the book of Revelation or Paul's letters. Right? Laodicea, Philadelphia, Magnesia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, and you, Philippi, right? Philippians. And so he's making this route, and eventually he's going to work, but he's writing these letters. This is the part where he's really writing the letters as a Roman citizen prisoner. And so you can see he wrote an epistle for these guys, an epistle for these guys, an epistle for these guys, et cetera, et cetera. So he's writing on his way to Rome. He eventually does write to the Romans because they're going to rescue him. They're going to try to break him out. And he says, don't do it. And that last quote, this one right here, what I suffer I shall be fearing Jesus Christ, he writes that to the Romans. Get, get, the, get the situation here. They're wanting to free him. And he's like, no, I'm going to be freeing Jesus. Don't worry about it. If it's my job to be martyred, I will be, I will be martyred. And so it's a, it's a really, and if you read the whole letter, it's almost moving the way he talks about this. Because you can tell they're caring for him, and they view him as a brother in Christ. And they're like, we're not going to kill anybody. We're not going to do anything illegal. We're just going to sneak you out. That's all they want to do is they just want to rescue. We're going to sneak you out. And he says, nope. God's ordained it for me that I'm going to die. I'm going to be purebred of Christ. Leave me, leave me to be. Which is really interesting. That I mean, when, it's, when, it's, when they say, we're going to kill you, and you say, okay, take your best shot. What threats do you have left, right? You, I mean, you don't have any threats left. Well, how, how they kill you. Yeah, 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 that's true. That's a threat. That's a threat, yeah. I mean, eaten by lions, you know, burned at the stake. I mean, there's some pretty painful ways they can do that. It's true. We're going to get to another one. Here, okay, so the other one that's a little bit more famous is Polycarp. I don't know if you recognize this name before, but St. Polycarp, some people call him. Another one that was probably ordained by John, but he dies another big famous martyr's death. But in this case, we have the Acts, A-C-T-S, like the book of Acts. In this case, we have Acts of his martyrdom. And it's one of the earliest Christian writings that we have. And so, with Polycarp, 
just to kind of give you some background, again, he was actually a friend with Ignatius. Ignatius may have been kind of like his mentor pastor. So when Pastor Dinger, for example, as, as, his, license, as his licensed deacon, um, pastor was my supervising pastor. So what I would do is I'd go to Pastor Dinger and say, you know, if I have this situation, what do I do? Or how do you deal with it when somebody approaches you with this addiction? Or when you're doing a funeral for this, how do you do that? You know, and I, you ask him questions, was very practical questions because he's been in the ministry for, you know, well over 20 years. And so that's, that's the similar situation. You have this senior bishop or pastor, and you have a lesser guy who's learning it. So Ignatius is probably Polycarp's mentor, but he also knows John. He calls him the old presbyter. That means the old elder. He knows this old elder, John, this old guy that was kind of, remember John gets exiled, right? So he's like, I know about this old guy who knew Jesus. That's kind of, you get this impression that that's how this is. So we have one letter he wrote to the Philippians, same church that Paul wrote to that survives, from Polycarp. Taught Irenaeus, we'll run to him later, but he taught Irenaeus. Uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp was a letter written by his church to the, another, to the church in Pontus to describe his death by local authorities. So the church gets together and say, okay, we just witnessed this. We have to write this story down and send it because people are asking. And that's the letter we have. So his church wrote this letter describing his death. All right, so how does this, how does this work out? So he's brought in front of the local authorities because they can't get rid of these Christians. And then somebody says in the, uh, in the mob, so to speak, bring out old Polycarp. Bring out old Polycarp. So he's hiding, for, he's initially hiding, but then he has a dream where his pillow catches on fire. Weird dream. And he realized from the dream that that meant that that probably was his death coming, that he was going to die by fire, so he has this dream. And so he ends up being brought up in front of the, in front of the, the, the magistrate, the local Roman leader. So at first, after hiding, he reveals himself, and then God said, he thinks God wants him to die this death as a witness. And that's literally what martyr means. A martyr is a witness. Okay. Whoops, I forgot it does that. There we go. Okay, so before the governor, Polycarp makes this really famous statement. I don't know if you've heard this before, but he says, Swear Christ, swear by the genius of Caesar. Renounce Christ. The the leader is saying this to him over and over. And the first thing that he says is, Away with the atheists. And because Christians only have one God and Romans were polytheistic, they call Christians atheists because they only have one God instead of many. Oddly. So you're an atheist. So, but uh, Polycarp plays with that. So the leader goes, away with the atheists. And Polycarp says, okay, away with the atheists. I have no problem saying that. I believe there's a God. And then he says, okay, renounce Christ. Swear by the genius of Caesar. And then he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he responds with this. This is one of the most famous lines in all of church history. For 80 and 6 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I curse my king who saved me? Which I, I hope I'm that courageous if I'm ever facing something like this, right? He's done me no wrong. He saved me. Why would I curse him? Help me out. And the, at, at that point on, the governor doesn't really have anything that he can say to him. He's threatened by wild beasts and fire. And this is a funny response. You can see it on the, the slide here. To which Polycarp references the eternal fires of hell and is unimpressed by the beasts. It's like, okay, send for him. That's fine. It's like, I can burn you at the stake. That's nothing compared to the fire of the world to come. So, Okay. <laughs> So, I mean, what do you do? I mean, and so the governor's getting frustrated with him because he thinks he's being a smart aleck. But he's trying to just say, hey, you know, I am who I am. If you're going to do it, do it. So he sends to be burnt at the stake, but the fire doesn't work, so he's stabbed, and his blood puts out the fire. It's a weird story. And this is why we think there's some truth in it. So he gets out, and they, put, they, they tie him up. They're going to burn him at the stake, 
And then when they burn him, the way that the, the witnesses say is it smells like this free, sweet fragrance, fragrance, like incense is burning, and he's not being affected by the fire at all. And so like, this isn't working, guys. Something's going on here. And so one of the soldiers comes up and stabs him. And when he stabs him, the blood comes out, but then this blood puts out the fire. And the local, the local authorities, like the people that are watching this, are like, wow, there's something different about these Christians. And then it just kind of ends. The letter ends. Isn't that interesting? It's a really odd, it's a very early martyrdom account. And Polycarp is one of the great heroes of the faith from this point. Okay, so I, I want to end with this. What I'm going to do, and Ralph will appreciate this, Rochelle, is I'm going to load a narration that Ralph did for me like five years ago. Um, we were just messing around with microphones and stuff. And so we did this. And so it's a little fuzzy, but I think you'll appreciate This is actually how the martyrdom ends. So I'm just going to close with this. Now when Polycarp entered into the arena, there came a voice from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And no one saw the speaker, but our friends who were there heard the voice. And next he was brought forward, and there was a great uproar of those who heard that Polycarp had been arrested. Therefore, when he was brought forward, the proconsul asked him if he were Polycarp. And when he admitted it, he tried to persuade him to deny, saying, Respect your age, and so forth, as they are accustomed to say. Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent, say, Away with the atheists. But Polycarp, with a stern countenance, looked on all the crowd of lawless heathen in the arena, and waving his hand at them, he groaned and looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheists. But when the proconsul pressed him and said, Take the oath and I let you go, revile Christ, Polycarp said, For eighty and six years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong, and how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But when he persisted again and said, Swear by the genius of Caesar, he answered him, If you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you are ignorant who I am, listen plainly. I am a Christian, and if you wish to learn the doctrine of Christianity, fix a day and listen. You I should have held worthy of discussion, for we have been taught to render honor as is meet if it hurt us not to princes and authorities appointed by God. But as for those, they do not count them worthy that a defense should be made to them. And the proconsul said, I have wild beasts, I will deliver you to them unless you repent. And he said, Call for them, for repentance from better to worse is not allowed us. But it is good to change from evil to righteousness. And he said again to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, if you despise the beasts, unless you repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten with the fire that burns for a time, and is quickly quenched. You do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come, and in everlasting punishment. But why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. And with these and many other words he was filled with courage and joy, and his face was full of grace, so that it not only did not fall with trouble at the things said to him, but that the proconsul, on the other hand, was astounded, and sent his herald into the midst of the arena to announce three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. When this had been said by the herald, all the multitude of heathen and Jews living in Smyrna cried out with uncontrollable wrath, and a loud shout, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, who teaches many neither to offer sacrifice nor to worship. When they said this, they cried out and asked Philip the Asiarch to let loose a lion on Polycarp. But he said he could not legally do this, since he had closed the sports. Then they found it good to cry out with one mind that he should burn Polycarp alive. 
For the vision which had appeared to him on his pillow must be fulfilled when he saw it burning while he was praying. And he turned and said prophetically to those of the faithful who were with him, I must be burnt alive. These things then happened with so great speed, quicker than it takes to tell, and the crowd came together immediately and prepared wood and faggots from the wood shops and baths, and the Jews were extremely zealous, as is their custom, in assisting at this. Now when the fire was ready, he put off his clothes and loosed his girdle and tried also to take off his shoes, though he did not do this before, because each of the faithful was always zealous, which of them might be more quickly to touch his flesh. For he had been treated with all respect because of his noble age, even before his martyrdom. Immediately, therefore, he was fastened to the instruments which had been prepared for the fire. But when they were going to nail him as well, he said, Leave me thus, for he who gives me power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved, even without the security you will give by the nails. So they did not nail him, but bound him. And he put his hands behind him, and was bound as a noble ram out of a great flock for an oblation, a whole burnt offering made ready and acceptable to God. And he looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, Father of thy beloved and blessed child Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of thee, the God of angels and powers, and of all creation, and of the whole family of the righteous who live before thee, I bless thee that thou hast granted me this day and hour, that I may share among the number of the martyrs in the cup of thy Christ, for the resurrection to everlasting life, both of soul and body, in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. And may I today be received among them before thee as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as thou, the God who lies not and is truth, hast prepared beforehand and shown forth and fulfilled. For this reason I also praise thee for all things, I bless thee, I glorify thee, through the everlasting and heavenly High Priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved child, through whom be glory to thee with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for the ages that are to come. Amen. Now when he had uttered his Amen and finished his prayer, the men in charge of the fire lit it, and a great flame blazed up, and we to whom it was given to see saw a marvel, and we have been preserved to report to others what befell. For the fire made the likeness of a room, like the sail of a vessel filled with wind, and surrounded by the body of the martyr as with a wall. And he was within it, not as burning flesh, but as bread that is being baked, or as gold and silver being refined in a furnace. And we perceived such a fragrant smell as the scent of incense, or other costly spices. At length the lawless man, seeing that his body could not be consumed by the fire, commanded an executioner to go up and stab him with a dagger, and when he did this there came out a dove, and much blood, so that the fire was quenched, and all the crowd marveled that there was such a difference between the unbelievers and the elect. And of the elect was he indeed one, the wonderful martyr Polycarp, who in our days was an apostolic and prophetic teacher, bishop of the Catholic Church in Smyrna, for every word which he uttered from his mouth both was fulfilled and will be fulfilled. That was a little narrative that we did. And it was kind of, he did a good job with it. And I, if you could, we could turn it up, you can kind of hear that. But we did that a few years ago um, just for kind of fun when I was playing with microphones and getting new equipment and stuff. But the idea here, and I'll let you, I know the bell rings, so I need to let you guys go. But uh, when you have church, that's our, that's our heritage as our family. That's our family history is somebody who's that bold standing in front and actually able to say, hey, I'm 86 years old. You could burn me and do whatever you want, but I'm still going to confess Christ. 
and it's a pretty inspiring thing. So I'll try to let, uh, I'll post this on the website or something so Christina can put this up so you guys can see this. Um, and we'll have to re-record it sometime with a better microphone, just see how it, you know what I mean? Just to see how it was. I think he'd like doing that when his voice is not yes. being ass assaulted by whatever's going on today. So, all right, let's, let's say the blessing really quick and I'll let you guys go. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. All right, see you guys around. Hi everyone, we have a few events for you to stick on your calendar this month. The first one is for our Habitat for Humanity project. If you are interested in joining the workday on October 20th, you can contact Ryan Stralo or John Johnson um, to get connected to them. If you don't already have their info, you can email the podcast at podcast at gracepocatello.org and we will be happy to send that link right over to you. The second is Oktoberfest on October 27th from 5 to 8 p.m. in the high school gym. We are celebrating our German traditional roots uh, with a polka band and good German food. So if you are interested in coming to that, make sure you stick that on your calendar. And if you would like to contribute a German dish, make sure to sign up on our sign-up page. And if you don't have that link, you can email our podcast or check your Wednesday announcements. Um, the last one that we're pointing out this week is Trunk or Treat is coming up on October 31st, Halloween, from 4 to 6 p.m. in our parking lot. If you don't know what trun Trunk or Treat is, it is an event where children can participate in the tradition of trick-or-treating without having to go door-to-door. -door. Instead, they move from car trunk to car trunk in our parking lot. If you would like to help and, uh, by having a trunk, um, email the podcast at podcast uh, at gracepocatello.org with the tagline Trunk or Treat. Um, if you are unavailable from 4 to 6 on the 31st, that's okay. Um, you can still contribute uh, via monetary donation or by bringing candy to the church office. Have a great week.